Jesus, you meet us in this place and you come running toward us to meet us in our need. We need to know that your promises are true. You come to us as a promise keeper. Our back is against a wall. You come to us as miracle worker. Lord, you do these things for us because you love us. And so we turn our hearts and minds toward you today, coming precisely as we are, because we actually can't be anything else but that, and invite you to meet us in this place as we are in all of who you are. So Holy Spirit, come, rule and reign in this place. Come Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a seat. It is really good to be with you today. It is really good to be with you after just a great Easter weekend from Friday night all the way through on Sunday. And I'm just glad to be in this place with you and to be a part of everything that Jesus is doing here. It's it's just a lot of fun. It is no secret that the world is broken. A simple glance at the headlines. COVID-19, nine weeks of war in Ukraine. And we know that, we know everything that we need to know. We, we look at the world and we realize this is not the way it's supposed to be. Have you ever looked at your life and thought, this is not the way it's supposed to be? Grief, anxiety, depression, perfectionism, control, abuse, trauma. You see, the thing is that the brokenness of the world out there is in here. It's in our minds, it's in our hearts, it's in our souls, it's in our bodies. The world is broken. And so are we. Our lives are marked by sickness and suffering and sadness. And in contrast to that, the scripture says in Psalm 147, 3, 147 verse 3, it says, He heals the brokenhearted and bandages their wounds. What's with that? I mean, is that a promise? Is it a guarantee of something that God can and will do in this life? Or is it more of an aspiration? A hope? A maybe? I believe God can. I'm just not sure He will. Something that He could do but just can't ever quite. This morning we're beginning a journey. And on this journey... We are going to consider the sadness and sickness and suffering 
of our minds and our hearts and the wounds that we carry, the wounds that we carry that tell us this is not the way it's supposed to be. And we're going to discover, or maybe rediscover, God's desire to save us from our sin and deliver us from our suffering, to heal not just our bodies, but our spirits and our souls and our memories and our hearts. In this first sermon, we're going to be hanging out in these topics till mid-June. In this first sermon, we are going to lay a groundwork for everything else that is to come. And if you're a kid that was raised in church, you are going to have a slight edge of an advantage today because you learned, like I did, how to do a sword drill. Okay, a sword drill, somebody calls out a pastor's scripture and you flip through it. You find it, first one there wins. If you didn't grow up in church, by that measure, you really didn't miss anything, did you? So, um, and if you don't know Scripture that well, we're going to throw a lot of it on the screen. But my goal this morning is to cover basically the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, to see how God moves towards us in the midst of our sickness and suffering and sadness. So if you have a Bible, let's begin on the very first pages. Let's begin in Genesis 1. Ours is a world marked by suffering and sickness and sadness because our world is broken. But that is not how God created the world. When God created the world, he made it in beauty. No pain, no punishments, no problems. In fact, at the end of six days of work, God looks on creation And in Genesis 131, it says, God looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was very good. Of course, things don't stay this way for long. In Genesis 3, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they choose to go their own way. They take matters into their own hands. They sin, and all of creation is plunged into chaos and disorder. When we think of sin, especially those of us that have some familiarity with Scripture and maybe some theological concepts, or maybe even if you don't, when we think of sin, we tend to think of personal guilt, the ways that we have transgressed against God's rule and reign. Now, sin is not less than that. It is that, but it is more than that. Sin corrupts God's good creation. In his book, uh, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, a great title for a book, Cornelius Plantinga Jr. says that corruption is a dynamic motif in the Christian understanding of sin, not so much a particular sin as the multiplying power of all sin to spoil a good creation and breach its defenses against invaders. See, sin corrupts all of creation, and that corruption extends to our hearts, our minds, our bodies, our souls, and it leaves us vulnerable, scarred, and and wounded. Plantinga goes on to say that sin lies at the root of such big miseries as loneliness, restlessness, estrangement, shame, and meaninglessness. This is why sin is the main human trouble. Sin typically both causes and results 
from misery. He goes on to say, a father who sexually abuses his daughter corrupts her. He breaks all the little bones of self-respect that hold her together, and filled with shame and anger at her treacherous father and conniving mother, grieving for her lost and innocent self, the corrupted child is extremely likely to abuse her children or assault her nervous system with large quantities of alcohol or to make or break one rickety marriage after another. He says, sin causes and results from misery. The wounds we carry, the sources of our sorrow and suffering and sadness, they find their roots right here. When we feel like this is not the way it's supposed to be, when we carry a burden of that, we find its beginnings in sin. Now hear me, not because anxiety or depression or grief are sinful in and of themselves, but because they are symptoms of a corrupt world. It is the corruption of sin playing out in our lives. Adam and Eve chose to go their own way in Genesis 3. That's what the nature of sin is. The word sin, the letter I in it, reminds me that I choose to go my own way. I leave beauty behind and choose brokenness. And in that moment, their relationship with God is wrecked, their relationship with each other is compromised, and their relationship with them, their own self is never the same. And what follows in the pages of Scripture is a compendium of human brokenness, an encyclopedia of the catastrophic and corrupting effects of sin. You see, as we turn the pages of Scripture, we discover that our sinful choices and the sinful choices of others leave us with wounds that last a lifetime. We find that our bodies don't work the way that God intended them to work. So we're born with disabilities and deformities that weren't part of God's original plan. The chemical balance of our brain can so quickly become a chemical imbalance, and we may possess a genetic disposition to alcoholism or, or, or depression. And so the scriptures say, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In a broken world, we experience all sorts of things that God didn't have in mind, death, disease, sickness, even accidents that can leave us with psychological and emotional wounds that stay with us long after the event has passed. Sometimes those experiences are so acute and so painful that we describe them as trauma, which at its very definition is the absence of a, harm, the absence of a nurturing thing or the presence of a harmful thing. In Living from the Heart Jesus Gave You, Jim Wilder describes trauma saying that traumas are wounds or injuries left in our identities that render us less than what God had in mind when he created us. They render us less than what God had in mind when he created us. Trauma is all over the Bible, by the way. Rape, incest, murder, betrayal, genocide, starvation, neglect, slavery. I mean, the list goes on, but the most notable trauma in Scripture is the trauma that Jesus endures in his suffering and death. 
There is not a traumatologist in the world that would not look on the passion of Jesus and not say that that was a traumatic event. And it's as if God himself was taking the pain of our trauma on himself. So the words of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 would even apply to those of us who have experienced trauma. We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses. We do. We have a high priest who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. The corruption of sin can taint our nearest and dearest relationships. In our families, we learn rules like men don't cry and roles. It's my job to stop mom and dad from fighting. And, and those rules and roles can leave us emotionally wounded. The scriptures even say that the sins of the parents can be visited on the children to the third and fourth generation. So there's this guy named Abraham in the book of Genesis who at one point lies and says that his wife is actually his sister so that he can gain financially from a certain situation. It's no surprise then that every man in Abraham's family line, every man in Abraham's family line struggles with deceit. In fact, some of his children do the very same thing. They lie about the identity of their wives for financial gain. Some of us have inherited ungodly beliefs and sinful patterns of behavior from our families. And so Pete Scazzaro in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, notes, Jesus lives in my heart, but Grandpa lives in my bones. Sometimes we experience demonic oppression or interference, a kind of brokenness that Jesus regularly confronts in the Gospels, and sometimes we carry with us an unwelcome inheritance, a spiritual warfare experience from a previous generation that harms us in the present. John Mark Homer writes in his foreword to the book Deliverance, A Journey Toward the Unexpected, about how his, he and his wife at the time have three children. She's in her mid-30s, and they are about to call hospice because she is dying, and doctors cannot figure out why. Doctor after doctor after doctor after doctor could not figure out what was killing his wife, and so they were preparing to watch her die. He was preparing to become a single dad in his 30s. Then in another environment, they were studying his, family, his wife's family history and found that a few generations prior, a witch doctor in her family's village had pronounced a curse on the firstborn daughter of that family line, and going back through history for generations, the firstborn daughter of that family died an early death or was ill her whole life. They did some deliverance ministry, some prayer, and his wife is alive. She's considered a medical miracle. This is a lot. And usually at this point in the PowerPoint presentation, I have a picture of a cat or a dog or something cute. I don't today. It is dangerous to catalog the brokenness and the sickness and the suffering and sadness that we experience. It is dangerous to do that in just a few minutes because we might belittle someone's story or ignore someone's story or caricature an experience. That's, that's not my intention. It is my intention to help some of you in the sound of my voice realize that the Bible has language and grammar for your experience. And that might be old news to some of us, but some of us for the very first time are learning that Scripture speaks in the language of our woundedness exactly. 
but it also speaks in a language of our redemption and hope and our healing. The good news has to be, for the good news to be really good, the bad news has to be really bad. So turn with me to Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, the prophet is proclaiming that God is going to send someone to help us. He's sending someone to aid our broken world. And with New Testament eyes, we know him as Jesus. But look at verses 4 and 5 of Isaiah 53. It was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for, our, for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be made whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. Now, we hear this passage usually on Good Friday, so our minds zero in uh, to, to, to the ways that this passage speaks to personal iniquity and sin, and it does speak to that, but there's a double helix of sin in this passage because wrapped around this idea of our personal guilt and transgression is this idea of our suffering. In these verses, Isaiah names sin as something that we do to transgress God's laws and a way that we have been weakened, corrupted, and wounded. And so Jesus comes to deal with our sorrows and our weaknesses and our sin. He comes to make us whole in every way. And gentle and lowly, the author Dane Ortland says that the cumulative testimony of the four Gospels is that when Jesus sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin and suffering not away from it. In Jesus, God takes on flesh and moves toward sin and suffering. Turn with me to Matthew 1. Matthew chapter 1. We just read a passage that we think of at Easter, and Matthew 1's a passage that we think of at Christmas. Matthew 1 tells the story of how Jesus the Messiah was born. And in verse 21, an angel says to the betrothed of Jesus' mother, a man named Joseph, she says, this angel says, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus. His name literally means the Lord saves, for he will save his people from their sins. When we think of Jesus' work to save us from our sins, we tend to think of the ways that Jesus relieves us of guilt before the Holy Father, right? Or how his cross ends the separation between us and God, and it does those things. But the death of Jesus is like a sham wow commercial. But wait, there's more. The word saved here implies that Jesus' coming and his death ends the corruption of creation and offers us healing. Because the word for saved 
here in Matthew 1 is the Greek word sozo. It's a word that's rich in meaning. In the original language of this word, it means to deliver from judgment. It means to deliver, but it also means to rescue from danger and destruction. And most significantly, it contains notions of healing. So that you could literally translate verse 21, you are to name him Jesus, for he will heal his people of their sins. In the Eastern Orthodox tradition, salvation is considered the cure of a soul sickness before it is considered something that happens in the courtroom of God's design. You see, Jesus comes to us not only to forgive our sins, but to free us from the corruptive and corrosive power of sin. Jesus comes to us as the healer. And how does he come to us? Well, verse 23 tells us, look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Jesus draws near to us. He is drawn to our suffering and our sorrow and He comes to offer us forgiveness and freedom. He's drawn to our sorrow and suffering, and he longs to give us a new birth. You see, Jesus is born into a world of sin and suffering so that we can be born again into a new reality of forgiveness and freedom. Jesus is born into a world of sin and suffering so that we can be born again into a bright future. And in Revelation 21, in the final pages of the Bible, we get a glimpse of what that future is like. This is our last one, by the way. Revelation 21, verses 3 through 4 say, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, And there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. We get a glimpse into eternity. We get a glimpse into the future. And we find that sorrow and death and crying and pain have no place there. But let me tell you the most radical thing Jesus ever said. Let me tell you the most wild thing Jesus ever said. Are you ready? The kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is here. The promises of the future, the promises of eternity are now here in our midst. The promises of the realities of eternity can define our present moment now. As we look to the story of the scriptures from beginning to end, It turns out that the words of Psalm 147, verse 3, they aren't aspirational. They aren't an unrealized ideal. They aren't a hope. Instead, these words, Psalm 147, verse 3, he heals the brokenhearted and bandages their wounds. They are a one-sentence summary of the character of God. 
It is what lies on God's business card to tell us how he feels about the brokenness of our world. It is a summary of how God deals with our sickness and suffering and sadness. It is the promise that this is not a pie-in-the-sky hope, a promise to claim, but it's not a pie-in-the-sky hope, but a promise to claim. It's, it's something to cling to in the midst of our wounds and pain. It is a promise that takes on flesh as Jesus, with his joyful presence and power, draws near to us as a savior and a healer. Jesus comes to bandage your wounds and heal your broken heart. Take a look at this. So I began to pursue inner healing um, after a conversation with someone that I just respected a lot. They were talking with Kyle and I and just sharing that they felt like there was things in the past that needed to be processed and dealt with before we could move forward. And it mostly related to um, us and our family. And so we were, had really been trying to pray and seek the Lord about what he was asking of us. And, and when this person, um, our friend Mark, asked us, you know, what's God saying about this, which is a common question that we ask here at Regen, what is God saying? And I remember just saying to him, like, I, I don't know. Like, I can't answer that question. Um, there's a lot of things that I could talk about, um, areas of my life that I could talk about what God was saying, but that was one that I couldn't. And so as he prayed for us and just kind of listened to us, he said, I really feel like the Lord, um, you know, is saying that you need to go back before you can go forward. And so that was kind of the beginning of my journey of inner healing. I had thought before about pursuing counseling um, over the years of like dealing with infertility and miscarriage, um, and it just never felt like the right thing for me. I didn't feel like I needed to sit, I'm kind of an internal processor, so it didn't feel as helpful for me to sit and kind of talk it out with someone. I really felt like I needed almost more of like a spiritual component to it where someone was actually kind of prompting me and kind of encouraging me in the direction I needed to go because I just felt really stuck and I knew that it, it was um, primarily around God and kind of my relationship with Him. Um, I had tried spiritual direction once and, and just to be honest, I it was a Zoom call, I got on, I don't even remember what the lady looked like, but I remember just sitting there and crying for like 50 minutes and getting done and telling Kyle, like, I don't need to pay someone to just sit and cry for an hour. Like, I can just do that on my own. And so I think at that point, that was after our first miscarriage and it was just too fresh. Like I wasn't in a place where I could really process. Um, so I did um, inner healing this past summer. And my process for pursuing inner healing was finding someone that I really trusted, that um, I trusted kind of where they were coming from spiritually, that I trusted that they were a safe person for me to feel comfortable with. And honestly, that I trusted someone who could pray and kind of discern and listen to God's voice with me and help me process that. So I ended up doing uh, inner healing with our friend Anna. And so we did this over Zoom as well. And um, what that looked like for me was we did three different sessions. Um, the first session, we just sat and kind of um, processed some of my memories, um, some of the things like the deepest parts kind of of my pain. And Anna just uh, really kindly, gently led me kind of to a place of saying like, let's center on this one memory and, and just really help me walk through it and find Jesus in that memory, like where he was and, and the hope and the healing that he wanted to offer me in the midst of that pain. 
Um, and it actually was not at all what I thought we would end up talking about. Like where the Lord kind of led us was not what I would have thought going into that time. So like I said, we ended up meeting for three sessions and actually two of the sessions that Anne and I met, we talked about like the, the miscarriage pieces and kind of my pain around that. But the other session, again, I think what's cool about like inner healing like I was doing um, is that the Lord really directs it. And so the second time actually we ended up talking about forgiveness and about um, there were some wounds that had kind of grown up during that season of infertility that um, there was unforgiveness in my heart and, and just some, some very specific things that I needed to work through. And for me, that was some of the hugest breakthrough. Um, I kind of felt like I was on this hamster wheel of unforgiveness and like playing things over and over again in my head and I would try to forgive and then it would be right back in that same place as soon as something even similar happened and I would be so frustrated with myself because I would think like, this is not what Christians should do. Like this, if Jesus has forgiven me, why can't I forgive and move on? And that process, walking through that with her was just like the most freedom that I've experienced in a long time. And I just felt like after that experience, there was even just a marked difference in, in how I interacted. And so I think for me, that, that was such a huge piece that it's really led me to encourage others to pursue inner healing because I think it's so worth the journey. It's not easy. It's really hard to talk about our pain. It's hard to like return to things that we wish would have never happened, that honestly shouldn't have happened, but did. Um, but I think in finding the, the courage to, to look back at those things and to allow Jesus to speak into those things, to see where he's at in those memories, that he's present with us, um, can bring such incredible healing and be such a leap board to like transformation, to hope and to freedom. And so I would just say, if you're on the fence today about whether or not you should pursue um, some kind of counseling or spiritual direction or inner healing, if you feel that prompting, it is absolutely worth it do it. You won't regret it. And um, I'm so excited for you to see what the Lord has for you on the other side of that. For the next eight weeks, we're going to go on a journey to discover and rediscover that Jesus is the healer. We want to rediscover how Jesus' healing extends to the deepest and most vulnerable parts of our story. We can experience Jesus' joyful presence and power in the midst of our wounds and experience a level of forgiveness and freedom that we did not think was possible. This is a series about Jesus' ability to heal the wounds that people cannot see. The wounds of our minds and hearts and souls and memories. This is a series about inner healing. Dr. Charles Kraft defines inner healing this way. Inner healing or deep level healing is ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit aimed at bringing healing to the whole person. Since the majority of human ailments are closely tied to damage in the emotional and spiritual areas, inner healing focuses there. It seeks to bring the power of Christ to bear on healing the roots from which damage springs. Since these are often in the memories carried unconsciously by those who come for help, 
Inner healing involves a special focus on what is sometimes called the healing of memories. He says, inner healing is the healing of the inner person, the mind, the emotions, the painful memories, the dreams. It is the process by which we are set free from feelings of resentment, rejection, self-pity, depression, guilt, fear, sorrow, hatred, inferiority, condemnation, or worthlessness. Inner healing is the renewing of your mind. Inner healing is an experience of the joyful presence and power of Jesus experienced in the places of our deepest hurt and greatest pain, in the places where we feel frozen, where we feel stuck, or where we feel helpless. Now, how do we experience inner healing? Inner healing comes to us sometimes through content. We read a book or listen to a podcast and something is said and it frames the situation in a different way. Sometimes it happens through community. One of the best things that ever happened to me was having a roommate in college. Can I get an amen? Amen, Stephanie Tennant should say. Um, that was when I discovered I was a loud chewer. <laughs> but sometimes inner healing comes to us through conversations, through Christian counseling, through spiritual direction, through inner healing prayer, through deliverance ministry, through mentoring and discipling. I just want to unpack at the end of this kind of initial sermon a few biblical principles about healing. And this is the first principle. Jesus is a gentleman. He will not force healing on anyone that does not want to receive it. He will not force healing on anyone that doesn't want to receive it. Isn't it curious that the wounds that we have, like the minute we set, step across the line of faith, like the minute we say yes to Jesus, isn't it weird that those things don't go away? You'd think that's what Jesus would do. And in fact, I've heard many sermons and seen lots of like Instagram shorts of sermons that seem to imply that's all it takes. Say yes to Jesus and everything is awesome. It's time that I remind you, I've been following Jesus for most of my life, and he's only made my life more complicated. Um, why doesn't Jesus just make it all go away? In John 5, Jesus meets a man who has been sick for 38 years. 38 years. And he heals the guy, but before he does, do you know what Jesus says? He says, do you want to be well? Isn't that interesting? I mean, the obvious answer you'd think from the guy is, do you want to be well? Yeah, I've been lying here by this pool for 38 years, but evidently he needed to ask. You see, sometimes Jesus doesn't deal with our wounds and our pain right away because he's a gentleman. He is not going to foist his power on us. And he knows... This is hard. I'm going to say a hard thing now. He knows that some of us have come to like the pain. He knows that some of us have come to like the identity the pain has given us, the control the pain has given us. And so he wants, first and foremost, to know if we want to be well. Because this is the second thing. Jesus likes doing things with us more than he likes doing things for us. He likes doing things with us more than he likes doing things for us. 
He wants us to go with him willingly on a trusting journey of healing. There are some kinds of pain that Jesus will not deal with until we decide that we are ready to trust him with that pain. There is some stuff in your past that will not be healed until you go back there with Jesus. Somebody once said that the cave we most fear to enter hides the treasure that we most seek. Sometimes we got to do the work. Sometimes we got to go to counseling. We got to ask for prayer. We need to confess sin. We need to have an accountability partner. Now, the third principle, this is key. Sometimes it seems like Jesus heals us in a moment, like whammo, blammo, a massive release of his power, and we are healed and transformed. And other times, it feels like that happens over a bit of a process, doesn't it? You know, my, my Pentecostal friends tend to emphasize the event. Like, ooh, I prayed it off, and I was slain in the Spirit, and I was better forever. Hallelujah. That's great. Some of us are over here on the process side of things, aren't we? Less about Jesus' power, more about Jesus' presence. See, that's where my Reformed sacramental friends are. You've got to suffer through it for the Lord. Ho-hum, let's sing another verse of the hymn and maybe it'll get better. See, here's the thing. It seems to me, over here it's all resurrection without a cross, and over here it's all a cross without resurrection. It seems to me that we can have anticipation for and expectation for and faith for God to do both. In fact, if your story is anything like mine, it's kind of like a hop and a sniff, and a hop, <laughs> can't wait for that to go viral. That's awesome. Um, just saw that. Mm. <clears throat> it seems like Jesus does both of these things, but here's the last thing I want to tell you. You can trust Jesus to be the healer. You can trust Jesus to be the healer and to pursue healing, to go to counseling, to go to inner healing prayer, to confess sin, it can feel so risky and so vulnerable and so hard. And do you know why? Because it is, right? But when we take that risk, when we take a step of courage, we can trust that Jesus will meet us, that he will be drawn toward us, not away from us, that no matter what we say or what we do or what we reveal, he will be gladder than glad can be to be with us. We can trust that Jesus is the healer. Amen? Amen. Amen. Here at Regen, we want to, to hear God's word, and we want it to change us from the inside out. And um, there's this radical idea in Scripture that, that Jesus is the shepherd and that his sheep recognize his voice. And so that means that for those of us who have said yes to Jesus, that we can hear him speaking to us. And so um, we're going to take a moment here, and just a little bit, the band's going to play. And I want to invite you this morning to, to ask the Father what it is that he's inviting you to this morning. Is it maybe just to accept the idea that he's the healer and he wants 
to bring healing to your life. Or maybe it's a, a specific step. Maybe there's something that was mentioned today that made your heart beat really fast and think, I could never do that, but maybe I, maybe I should at least consider it. And so let's just take a moment um, and ask the Father just to speak to you. What is it that he's inviting you to today? Father, I thank you that you sent your son to live um, a sinless life, to die, to be raised again, so that he could heal us, so that we could find healing and hope and freedom and wholeness. And Father, I know that you know the hearts of each one in the sound of my voice here in this room and online, that you know the pain, that you know the suffering, you know the ways in which... Um, they feel stuck and broken and frustrated and you long to speak to that. And so I pray today, Father, that they would hear your voice and that they would act on what it is that they sense you inviting them to and that they would find freedom and wholeness and transformation that doesn't just impact them, but the lives of those around them. So we ask these things in your name. Amen.